Hi, everybody. Welcome to the containment unit. This is Janine Melnitz. What can I do for you? Put on your bunny slippers. It's slime for the Ghostbusters containment unit podcast with your hosts, Matt and Tom. Hello to all of our cool cats and kittens. Welcome to another episode of the containment unit podcast. I am Matthew Sanders, joined by my good friend and yours, Tom Henry. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm here, Matt. How are you? You know what? Uh, I'm I'm hanging in there. You know, it's it's a when we record this, it's a Wednesday. It's a hump day, uh, and you know, so uh, it, we're on the decline now. Though I'm getting closer to the weekend. Mm, indeed. So I can't complain about that. Yeah. How, no, however, I know what we're not going to complain about. I think we haven't talked about it too much, but we have some new posters that I don't think we're going to be complaining about. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say complain is I is the right word. No. And so, you know, uh, our buddies at YHS and the cross rip, they're doing these huge in-depth reviews of the posters and we might hit some of that stuff, but really I would love to take a different angle on it, Tom. And, uh, what are we thinking from an autograph standpoint? How are you looking at these posters? How do you feel about these posters in general? But then let's talk about it from an autograph perspective. Do you think they're signable? Is it worth starting one of these posters? Yeah. So when I saw those, po- I've been waiting for a new poster for two years. You know me, I'm a poster guy. I have the original teaser posters like hung in my living room. Uh, and I, I love, love, love the afterlife teaser that we both have started and have signed. Um, I didn't love the new posters uh, because they're, Frankly, to me, they're, they're just kind of modern-y looking uh, photoshopped jobs. I, I just didn't love them. Um, I liked the domestic one a little better than the other one. Um, yeah. I, I found myself thinking, like I mentioned this to our in our chat, like where's the third one with the original cast? Like there's got to be one, right? Like it, it feels For like sure. there is another poster with the original cast that, like, that they're saving or something, you know, an alternate which I would not surprise me in the least if that it happens. But, um, you know, I, I, you and I have afterlife-related plans uh, for autographs. And the international poster, though, you know, I, that's a really great poster to get signed. You know, it's and, very... And that's the one where they're facing forward. They're facing you see forward. their faces, yep. <clears throat> the issue with it, though, is there's no Carrie Coon on it, which is weird. Right. Uh, but I mean, as far as these posters go, they're both lightly colored for the most part. You know, a black or a blue shows up. Silver would probably look fine in most places. And uh, I think they are very signable. And, and what's cool about these posters and this movie and this cast specifically is they're completable as is. Like if you were to go for people pictured, you can you can finish these things fairly easily, I believe. I mean, we haven't really connected with a couple of them, but I can't imagine well, that it's going to be, tr- you know, tricky, but. Well, I, I think you're right. Especially if we're saying completed means mm-hmm. people pictured on the poster. Mm-hmm. Now, because I... you know, Rudd's going to do another show at some point. Yeah. So was Finn. Yep. I would imagine that 
Celeste and Logan and McKenna will be doing it at some point too. Maybe. I mean, who knows? But I don't know if they would do like conventions. It's not like Ghostbusters is the biggest con draw, but you know, I mean, a signing for sure. You know, the, the one thing that's weird to me is that I wouldn't, like I said, I really love the teaser poster the, with the Ecto in the, in the rye field. I love it a lot. And you could have anybody sign that because there's nobody pictured, you know, so you can have everybody sign it. You know, would you have Bill Murray sign one of these posters? Are you asking me? Yeah. Would you? I would. So I, I think, I think like if I were to start tomorrow and I had to pick one of these posters, I'm still going with the teaser on the Ecto. Me too. I, I love, I, I love the color in it and it's not that, I know they're all very similarly colored, but it's it's a little brighter. There's more white space. And then you got the wheat field, which you can sign in. And I, there's just, <laughs> yeah, right there in the corner where it's the most red of the whole entire poster. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I, you know, there's just, I love, I love that first poster. The other ones are great. Yeah. But I love that first one. Yeah, me too. I think if you're doing just like new cast, then I think that international one is great. And and somebody on Twitter, they did a uh, textless version of it, which is really, really nice. And I saved it. Ooh, I haven't seen uh, that. I have a really high res copy of it. So down the line, when we need these images, we're going to have some pretty cool stuff we can offer. But um, And that's of the teaser or Bible. the domestic? Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I was worried and my worry from the beginning has been, you know, I really wanted them to do a teaser poster that that was in the same style as the original teasers where it's just the logo and it could say something like, guess who's back again to save the world or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um and with just the logo, the rusted logo, I thought that would have been really cool and, and fit with, with Jason's idea of honoring the original so much. Um, and so in my head, I was worried about another poster because I've already started uh, the Afterlife poster and I'm fairly far along on it. So I'm happy to say that nothing here is going to make me change gears and, and I can just continue uh, with the current poster, which is nice. Yeah, you you are lucky in that that you are far down that road. Um, so, yeah, I mean they're great. the The question that I have, and this came up with someone, is in the domestic new poster, the the what could be lightning coming down from the sky? Is that lightning or is that proton streams? Uh, our friend Chris Stewart at the Crossrip believes that it's a proton stream. And I kind of agree. It looks like a proton stream shooting up and it's meeting some kind of sky vortex lightning. I don't know. It, it does really look like it. So then you have to ask yourself, well, I mean, is this movie, is this really representative of a scene in the movie? I don't think so, but. Um, but everything tells a story, Tom. I guess. These After listening to the Crossrip, these posters are a lot less straightforward than I thought because I did not bother to look at the the windows in the shops and I did not see the Stay Puft sign uh, until they mentioned it. So, you know, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I I didn't notice that right away either. I'm not going to lie to you. And I didn't know, I didn't even notice on the original poster that there's the the road in 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 common there. Mm-hmm. That the, the we're saving the world with the three guys from the first film. I didn't know they were standing on a road until our buddy Derek pointed that out. Yeah, it's just that that credit block at the bottom kind of kind of uh, obscures it. Yeah, but they're, but, they're they're fine posters, you know. If I had to pick one to get signed, I'd probably do... Like, I think that the international one is better for signatures, but I think I would probably go with the domestic one, personally. I like that one a little better. And it's got Carrie Coon on it, which, you know, she's obviously not on the other one, so... I, I, I get what you're saying about the international one. It's just, it's, it's lighter, which makes it a little better for that. Yeah. Plus, it's the front-facing, but... I do like the domestic better. I mean, I think that we would have had a lot of orders for the international one if that was out uh, when we did the signing with Rudd, but I guess we'll just have to get another one. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So these came out, what, last week? So you have anything else you want to say on these posters or what? No, I'm just staring at them now. All right. Well, you had an eventful week, didn't you? So why don't you tell us what you did this week that is Ghostbusters related? Sure. So, um, you know, it's no surprise to anyone in our group that we have been doing everything we can to honor the legacy and the work of Tim Lawrence, who worked on many films but he worked on both Ghostbusters films. He was inside the Terror Dog, uh, first film. And then he pretty much was the shop guy for Ghostbusters 2. Slimer oversaw all the effects and all that stuff, along with Dennis Muren and ILM. Unfortunately, he passed away December of 2019. Um, and uh, it's tragic, unexpected. No one saw it coming. And so we as a group have decided that we wanted to support and, and honor his legacy. And one of the ways we were doing that was with patches and the family. Absolutely. His family his, uh, absolutely loved the patches and what we were trying to do. And so uh, they had let me know, as you again, if you're in the group, you know that all the money from the patches is going towards his collection. Um, and so all of his stuff and he had a ton of stuff went to the University of Florida's uh, museum. They have a pop culture section and it's all going to be on display. And I can't wait for that. Uh, and we'll keep you guys posted on when that is. I, I, it might not be till 2023, somewhere in there, but um, it could be sooner. But once we know, you will know. Um, and so his, his uh, partner called me and she had let me know that some of the stuff from the mu- that they sent to the museum, the museum sent back. They just didn't have space for it, didn't fit the collection. And she wanted to know if I would be willing to come to Tim's house in Jacksonville and go through it and take some of it. And and we discussed selling what was left to benefit the charity, to benefit the fund. And so it was really cool being able to sit there with Tim's close friends and family uh, see his home where he had lived for the last couple decades, decade and a half, 
see his workshop and where he was making a lot of props and a lot of things of, of recent and just to see some of the stuff that he was doing. So it was, it was a really cool, it was a really cool time. And, um, and now I've been adopted into the family and I'm supposed to be going up there for Thanksgiving or Christmas again. Um, so a lot of fun, but here's what's cool. And Tom, you're going to help me figure this out. And this is like hot off the presses. We haven't talked about it in the group yet. So the first people to really hear about this will be those who listen to the podcast. So this will be a perk for you because I won't, I won't talk about it for a little bit. But we do have some of his puppets, including all the controls for some of the stuff he built. Um, it, we've got some of his sculptures and clay maquettes and uh, original drawings and personal belongings and stuff that uh, we are going to make available to our group first. And uh, now I should probably preface, there's nothing Ghostbusters in here. I don't know that there's any Beetlejuice is not in there. There's no big films in there. I think the item of the most recognizable film that I have is probably from Cocoon, the Ron Howard film. Um, there's nothing thriller in there, um, but there's some just cool stuff. So if you appreciate Tim and you're wanting to uh, support charity and maybe collect a really cool prop uh, and, and, you know, something that he built himself. We're going to make it available to the group and we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes. And it should be relatively affordable. We're not talking like prop store level prices here, but just stuff that's going to make sure that all of Tim's items go to a good home and support some good. Yeah, it's I've only seen a portion of it. Uh, I can't wait to see the rest of it when I come out there, but uh, it's crazy, this opportunity. You know, Tim Tim has a, had a great career, and, and he worked on a lot of things, and, and some of the stuff is just really, really, really cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's a wonderful opportunity, and, and his family, they're, they're great people, and, and just really awesome of them to entrust us with the uh, distribution of his legacy. It is. And, you know, it reminded me, I think we all know, but just how talented he is. And I have blueprints that he drawn, that he's drawn, just his sketches and his drawings are incredible. The stuff that the stuff that he would sculpt in so many different styles. Um, we have armatures from different things. It's just it's all really, really cool stuff. And it's humbling that they trust us with this stuff. I don't want to give or sell much of it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's cool that we've been trusted with this and I, and I hope that we can do a lot of good with it. Yeah, indeed. I, I hope, uh, I hope people are interested in it and, you know, the, the amount of stuff that you have is not a small amount. And I know Amanda's probably going to kill you, uh, if you don't get it out of there pretty quick, but, <laughs> uh, stay tuned, uh, on that front folks. It's one of those cool things that the containment unit brings you that you don't get anywhere else it's like the jack johnson thing it's just we've had these weird random opportunities that you get just through connections and such and, and this is another one that's really really cool which speaking of jack johnson we are going to get ready to to do another run on his art the prints so that is coming so anybody who's asking just be patient 
I get messages still there. It'll be coming. Don't worry. And you will know, and you'll have plenty of time to order. We just wanted to space things out and we just got done or we Hector just got done with some big signings. That was, uh, kind of expensive for a lot of people, for a lot of us, uh, with multiple projects. And so we just want to space things out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, be patient. <laughs> you, uh, you got a lot more than I did, I think. And I, uh, I was hurting cause it's like, we did that. So we had our projects adding the legends, but then we also had the DeLorean. It was just a lot at once, but, but, yep. uh, I guess this means that the Washington Square Ghost is done, or has, it's complete. It's, have you seen them yet? I have not. Now, <clears throat> technically, we could add another name, but you know what? We're going to let you guys decide that and figure that out on your own. Um, so we added John Berg to the Slimer projects and the Stay Puff projects and the Terror Dog projects. We that's the one that hurt it did yeah but we learned a lot about john berg through doing this and like we knew him from star wars and whatnot but his contributions to uh ghostbusters were were uh significant so we did that washington square ghost is done uh i'm very excited i've wanted phil tippett on that that shot uh for so long i think i got an eight by ten of it and the the project so really excited about that um and then uh the for those of you listening, I will reveal this here. Uh, the letters from Celeste O'Connor are in transit. Ooh. So, uh, we should have those soon, and then we'll, we'll get those distributed out. Uh, Breaking soon. news. And for those wondering, yes, yes, we intend to do a signing with Celeste on actual Ghostbusters items uh, just as soon as she is allowed to do so, which would probably be at the end of the year, if not early next year. Uh, and then we have another opportunity with another cast member from Afterlife in January. So uh, we're kind of pivoting to Afterlife just a little bit uh, for a little while, but that doesn't mean that other stuff won't happen too. So. It's going to be, it's going to be a fun Fun couple months here as we lead up to afterlife. Now, speaking of fun and afterlife, uh -huh. Tom, you've got a trip coming up that oh, yeah. you are very fortunate to go on and be part of. But this is going to be, I think, one of like the ultimate Ghostbuster fan experiences. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, uh, I decided that I was going to uh, go to New York Comic Con if I got a reservation for the panel for afterlife. Uh, and I did. So I will be going to Newark Comic Con uh, next Friday. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's... Uh, I'm very excited about it. Getting that reservation was really, really exciting. I haven't been to New York uh, in 15 years. And I am flying in 15 years to the day that I flew in last time. That's so, a fun fact. Weird. Weird timing. So I'm going to go to the convention. I've never been to New York Comic Con before, but going just for the Afterlife panel, and then I'm going to spend a day sightseeing on Saturday. Uh, you know, I saw the firehouse, et cetera, last time I was there, but hey, that was 15 years ago. So I'm going to go do that stuff again. And, uh, you know, a bunch of our friends are going to be there uh, from both the autograph world and the uh, Ghostbusters world. So really excited to uh, get to spend a little bit of time with. Uh, with our corporate overlord, uh, Craig, Craig, and, and Abby and Jake uh, from YHS. So that'll be nice. And who knows what's going to happen to this panel? 
maybe there's a signing. I don't think there is, but who knows? Maybe they'll give us the poster. You know, maybe they will uh, give us a new trailer, or maybe they'll they'll wheel out Bill Murray uh, tied to a chair because that's the only way you're gonna get him to do a panel like that. Maybe they'll. Maybe I'm nuts, Matt. Maybe they'll like. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I mean, they showed it once. They did. They showed it at CinemaCon, so who knows? Uh, we know it's done. It is done. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited, though. And you talked about the ultimate Ghostbusters fan experience. And and I think that it's hard to, to like figure out what the ultimate experience is because for, on one hand, the 2016 premiere was a pretty great experience for, for a fan. You know, you everybody was there and you got to see the new movie and such and it was in Hollywood and it was a thing. But then again, Fan Fest was kind of an ultimate fan experience too because you were on the Sony lot and the Ecto-1 was there and again, everybody mm -hmm. was there, all this cast and then these panels and such. You know, but the idea of seeing new uh, material presumably from this third movie that we've waited for for three decades is uh i don't know seeing that with a bunch of fans at a fan but event that's, that's, do you that's think is is it possible that this might be the first time some of the cast and crew see it as well i mean if they show the movie sure um but you have to imagine if the movie's done you know ernie i think saw it and dan saw it i i can tell you uh some of the new cast hasn't seen it. I don't know if any of the new cast has or hasn't, but one person uh, mentioned to us that they hadn't. So you got to figure if they're going to be on a panel, you know, maybe they screened the movie for them before. Uh, they screened Ghostbusters Answer the Call for the cast, the original cast, the night before they did Jimmy Kimmel because they talked about it on Jimmy Kimmel. I was I was at that show, and they talked about how they saw it the night before. So... Bill and Ernie and Dan and uh, Annie, you know, et cetera. They were all, they all saw the movie together. You know, I, who's going to be on this panel is it, it's really, the thing that I'm most curious about is like, we haven't, the movie opens in like less than two months and we haven't seen any real glimpses of the original cast yet. We know they're in it. They, they talk about being in it couple of them live in New York. Like, is this going to be the moment where they show us something? Like, are they going to show us a, a photo or, or, you know, I wonder, I have to wonder what's the next step in the marketing campaign or do they just save it? You know, because think about Comic-Con panels of the past, you know, what you see there, you get big revelations and, and such. And so I wonder if like, they're going to show us something and I don't know, maybe it's just wishful thinking, but I, I would love to see, even if it's Dan Aykroyd, I would love to see Danny. And, and if he walks out on stage and then we see him in a, ugh, I, I just, I'm very excited, but I'm trying to manage my expectations and temper it. Cautious optimism. Yes. But hell, I'm going, I'm going to go to New York for the first time in 15 years and I get to go see the firehouse and go to a Ghostbusters afterlife panel. Like very excited. Let's, let's not leave out the best part though, Tom. <laughs> You're having lunch with a VIP. I am having I am having lunch with the VIP. It'll probably be honestly a meal and a show if we're being honest, but uh, I'm going to yeah, I'm going to have lunch with our friend Steven, uh, Steven Friedland. Brute force. Brute force. Yeah. 
Yep. He's excited to grab a pierogi with you. He is. He really is excited. I, I wasn't sure if he would be. Uh, I've been uh, a little hands-off um, with the signing just because I was busy with other stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to spend some time with him uh, amidst my um, my sightseeing. So it's it's going to be it's going to be one of those incredible, amazing, unforgettable trips. Even if no matter how the panel goes, you know it's going to be amazing. You know it's going to be awesome. You're going to see some new stuff. Yeah. And yeah, if you think about FanFest, like you and I were there together at FanFest, and we were so excited about about um, anything Afterlife related. It wasn't called Afterlife at that point. Um, and as we know, nothing came out of that nothing the only we thing that close. came out yeah it was close it was close but the only thing that came out of that was they said that the original cast had read the script and they basically tipped their hat to them all being in it that was it but there was no poster or trailer or casting the paul rudd i slime myself video right so you know um but this is a month before the movie opens like they're gonna show something new they're not just gonna be like here's the trailer you saw a month and a half ago it's gonna happen Something's gonna happen. There's and gonna be something strange in the neighborhood. Uh, for sure. So, um, are they streaming the panel? Yes, and they so are. for all of the schlubs like me, who uh, you're gonna watch digitally. It's only twenty bucks to tune in, and you get access to all the panels, and you get uh, they're on demand for thirty days afterwards. So. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> For 20 bucks, you get to tune in. I'll be tuned in live. We're going to have a way for our group to interact with each other during the panel and and just make comments and, and have fun watching it together from home. So uh, I'm sure that Tom will not be available. There's a chance. Or maybe I will be. But there's a chance that if they are going to show anything too cool, they may not let you have your phone. So, you know. That's true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll be, I will be holding the fort down from the home base. I am bringing tissues because either way, I feel like, like, I know this movie's going to wreck me emotionally and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to, that I'm going to see it or, or that they're going to show it or anything like that. But like, I have to be prepared. Even a new trailer, if they drop one frame of Peter Venkman or Ray Stance, just it's over dude it's over I, me. I mean this is not i'm not exaggerating watching just the latest adam savage tested video where they're walking through the spangler farmhouse it was hard for me not to get choked up a little bit because that's our guy it's it's starting to become real for me uh you know, like, I, I'm actually starting to believe that this movie is actually coming out and that it actually exists. Uh, there was something that sunk in the other day, and I was like, I, I just can't even... I think it was, it was uh, Sigourney Weaver's interview or something. And uh, I, it's just... It's wild, man. I can't, it's nuts. Here we are. We have a third film coming out with people playing the characters that we want them to play. <laughs> That was a weird in what appears to be an amazing new cast to partner along with them. Yeah. And the reviews said it was great, you know, uh, at a CinemaCon. Everybody, all the reactions, everybody said it was it was really good. So that that, that gives me hope. Yep. 
Yep. It's, I don't know, man. It, I know you're about to be all up in the thick of it, but even, even just for guys like me who can't be there, I'm excited. There's just a buzz. There's an electricity in the air. Even just going to Target now and seeing how Ghostbusters is like the the big the big thing. Like they got a whole section set up for Ghostbusters costumes. Like who would have thought that? Do they? Have you seen that? Oh yeah, you, yeah. You haven't seen that? I've been to a Target in a couple of weeks. Yeah, the the one by my house. They've got it set up kind of like an end cap, but it's kind of its own island, and it's all just Ghostbusters. Like, when was the last time that ever happened? You know, it's it's been a long time. And I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. It's a little weird that the movie doesn't come out before Halloween, but let's not let's not argue about it at this point. It's just it yeah. seems like a missed opportunity, but I guess I should go to Target. Uh, I have the Afterlife toys, though, so I, I haven't really needed to go. I have the, the Plasma Series figures uh, in a box somewhere. But, yeah. Yep, so it's a good time to be a fan. So, uh, Tom, so shifting gears, we do, we, we're going into the archive. We are pulling out an interview, which, man, it was great. We had a lot of fun. This was like a master class on Slimer and how Slimer was made. And if you guys don't subscribe to our YouTube channel, you might listen to it and then decide you need to watch it because he's got slides and pictures and some that we've never seen before. Um, and it, it was just so good. And Yeah, it was. And I, and I wonder how it plays in just audio format because I'm not going to cut it because um, he does show a lot of stuff. So you know, if you listen to this on your commute or something and, and you like what you're hearing, there is a video version as well on our YouTube. Uh, we're just dropping the audio because, you know, you can't really listen to uh, the video version without watching it, you know, on YouTube because YouTube is a pain in the butt. So um, just trying to make it available to as, as much of the audience as we can. But, yeah, the video one's definitely uh, definitely intriguing, to say the least. Yep. And we're we're slated. The plan is to have another signing with this individual here soon. We need to. Yep. Uh, he's open to it. The, the first time was limited. And so not everybody was able to get all the things they wanted. And so uh, just check out the, check out the interview. Get ready for another signing probably in a few months down the road. And uh, with that, Tom, why don't you tell him who, who we got? Uh, we're chatting with uh, our friend, uh, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 alumni, Mark Siegel. Hello, Mark, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our group. Welcome to our channel. We're happy to speak with you today. Thank you. Happy to talk to you guys. Mark uh, is going to tell us a lot about his career, but what you may not know is Mark is one of the few people who has a very, very unique distinction in Ghostbusters, and that's that he worked on both Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2. So, right. Mark, to take us away, the first thing I think we all want to know is, you know, how did you get started? Like, what, what was the first step in your career to, to join uh, the film industry? You know, this could take an entire hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to give you the encapsulated version. So I've loved movies as, for as long as I can remember since I was a tiny kid. 
but all kinds, fantasy movies. So all the Disney movies, Wizard of Oz was a big favorite. And then by the time I was like six, I really got into monster movies and science fiction movies. The classics, you know, we, I, I grew up in the early 50s. And my, my, family, my dad was really into TV and technology. So I think we had one of the first TV sets in the neighborhood. And um, we were even encouraged to watch because my dad loved watching it especially. But then beyond that, my brother and I, we shared a bedroom. He's two years younger. And at some point, we actually got our own TV. And to have two TVs in a household at that time was really rare. It was like a cube, a Bakelite, dark, dark Bakelite cube about this big with a screen about this big you know but we could stay up late and watch the late night monster movies on saturday night you know that had all the classics like king kong and uh some of the 50s movies didn't hit tv yet but we were aware of them uh, films like then them and beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms and aside from just watching and loving the monster movies i was always interested in how they did the stuff you know, they, um, uh, whether they were puppets, I, I started hearing about stop motion animation, uh, the other special effects, science fiction movies too, with spaceships. We watched the old Flash Gordon serials, all of that stuff. And the first conscious memory I have of, be, of going to a movie with my dad was in 1953, uh, yeah, 53 for War of the Worlds. I was only six years old. And, you know, that's a scary movie. It, it still holds up. It's got scary images. But I loved it. So I was totally into it. And then as soon as I was able to go to the movies myself, I would go to, to movies like, uh, well, Godzilla and Rodan were playing in theaters. And uh, my brother and I would go to all the monster movies like The Fly, I remember, and the, the William Castle movies like The Tingler. Um, I do remember actually seeing, I was a big Ray, Ray Harryhausen fan, of course. I remember seeing the original Beast from 20,000 Fathoms at a birthday party. It was a friend of mine, uh, his father owned a movie theater and this particular little neighborhood movie theater and this particular one had a part of the balcony had a glassed off room. So it was like a party room and you'd get a group of kids in there making noise and wouldn't bother the rest of the audience. So I remember being up in this glassed in room with a bunch of kids watching The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So loved all that. So that's kind of the foundation of it. Eventually, I went through a lot of different things in high school, thinking about careers, um, including going into science, you know, because science and science fiction sort of were like that. But then in high school, I had a really inspirational drama teacher, Gary Parker. He was a young guy out of University of Minnesota Theater. I grew up in Minneapolis, by the way, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Gary, Gary had come in, he'd bring you all kinds of innovative new procedures and ideas and interactive way of doing theater. And I really loved it. I really got involved in it. Gary liked me a lot. I became like his favorite student. So I became like the president of the drama club and started doing theater in the school plays. And that eventually led to me uh, actually, Gary was instrumental in this. He um, was able to get me a full theater scholarship to the University of Minnesota, which had a very good theater program. So that kind of determined uh, 
part of my future. I, I was thinking about being an actor, but I went in, I had the full theater curriculum. So that not only included acting, but you know, set design and lighting and makeup, really liked the makeup class. Had a, had a great makeup teacher named Rich Ramos, who teaches how to work with things like, um, you know, nose putty. I remember, this just flashed in my head, remember doing a Cyrano de Bergerac makeup with the big nose. And Rich, the, the instructor, really loved it because from the front, it looked like a normal nose the way I had sculpted it. But as soon as I started turning profile, it was really long. So even at that point, I started having a knack for it. So fast forward to my graduation and I decided being a nice responsible young man that I, you know, rather than going to theater professionally, which was questionable, um, that I would get my degree from the College of Education. So I could have a teaching degree and I had a double major in English as well. So that's what I did, got my degree in theater and English. And my first job out of uh, college was teaching seventh and eighth grade, junior high. I taught, I used a lot of theater techniques in my classes and um, I called it communications more than just English. Okay, little side things going on here that's gonna lead us in an interesting path. Um, but about the year, let's see, around the year I graduated, that was 1969, maybe 1970, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey um, started their uh, clown college. I don't know if you were aware of that. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey was very famous at the time. I had read a big um, Life magazine article that talked about the clown school. So all the old clowns were dying out and they needed to bring new blood. So it was a good publicity thing for the circus to have this school, plus they were getting new talent. So I, that, was, that was just in, in my mind. And I loved circuses. That was another thing I went, we went to every year. And then one day, one of my eighth grade scholastic magazines had an article about the clown college. And not only was there an article, but they had an address to write to if you were interested in getting information or applying. And just something said, if I don't at least write to them, I'll never forgive myself. It was fantasy. So I wrote them a letter, finished my year of teaching and they offered me a contract to continue but I was restless wasn't quite happy about it and decided to decline the contract and I took off for Europe so while I'm in Europe I get I'm getting mail you know forwarded mail and the messages from my family and um, I get a message that my application to the Ringling Brothers Clown College was accepted <laughs> so but I was on this big trek around Europe and I wrote to them and I, and I said, man, you know, I know that being in the clown college doesn't automatically guarantee you a job in the circus. It's, you know, you have to go through the training. And I said, I'm off on this big trip in Europe and will you please consider me for next year? And then I thought, I don't know, I blew it. Finished my whole year in Europe, came back the following summer, summer of 71, got into a summer theater company with my uh, theater teacher from high school, Gary Parker, who since had become a really good friend, still is one of my closest friends. And then all of a sudden, I think it was around September 71, I get a call from Bill Ballantyne, the director of the Ringling Brothers Clown College, 
saying that they had accepted me based on my previous year's application. And what I didn't realize, I found out later, is the fact that I actually turned them down because I was on a big trip in Europe worked in my favor because the, the application didn't have to do with your skills and talent, but they looked at psychological stuff about how you'd fit into um, traveling on the road, living in the circus. And um, so here I was, you know, traveling around Europe for a year. They found that if you spoke different languages, that made you a good candidate. Or if you played musical instruments, which I did. I was also a musical clown. I played a little slide trumpet. I'd been a trumpet player since like nine years old. So, so there it was. I was accepted to clown school. And I went to the Ringling Brothers Clown College down in Venice, Florida, their winter's quarters, seven-year course, seven-week seven course. Every day we had a curriculum, we had specialty teachers. I bet you're wondering how this is going to get me into visual effects. I like this. This is so, I've never talked to anybody who went to clown college. So like, wasn't expecting it, but I'm, I'm all in. I have so many questions. Okay. Like, <laughs> There's actually another very well-known visual effects, uh, special effects makeup artist who went through, who was a clown with Ringling Brothers, Steve Laporte. I don't know if you know that name. Yeah, I recognize that. Yeah, and he was a few years after me, but I've got to know Steve quite well. And um, so there, I'm not the only one. <laughs> did uh, Did Matt leave us? He dropped, he dropped. he'll be back, I think. Uh, okay. Network issues. <laughs> so anyway, the Clown College was, they had specialty, specialty teachers who brought in to teach us different things, acrobatics, stumbling, juggling, all the usual stuff. And the makeup teacher that they brought in, middle of every day, during sort of over the lunch hour, we had our makeup class. And the makeup teacher was a guy named Vern Langdon. Do you know that name? Vern Langdon was very well known in the makeup effects business. He was Don Post's partner in starting the Don Post mask company. Oh. He worked with Don oh, no. Post Sr. and then Don Post Jr. But at the time he came to teach us at the Ringling uh, Clown College, he had recently finished working on the original Planet of the Apes with John Chambers. So Vern not only taught us clown techniques, you know, how to put the makeup on and help us develop our characters, but he taught us basic prosthetics. He taught us how to do alginate castings of our noses and do sculptures and molds and make our own rubber clown noses. So I really enjoyed doing it. You know, I'd been making things and drawing things since I was a little kid. I had this makeup background, you know, in my theater college uh, uh, classes. And, um, and Vern liked my work and we wound up staying in touch. Eventually, this clown, clown school finished. I was one of about, we were a class of about 40 and about half of us were offered contracts to travel with the circus. And, and I did, I was a Ringling Brothers clown the um, uh, year, the 1972 season in the Red Unit traveled for like almost 11 months, uh, 45 cities in almost as many states, and um, uh, being in the circus. And during this time, I kept in touch with Vern Langdon. And he'd show up at the circus sometimes when we were on the road, you know, so we knew each other. I finished the year, I had gotten together with one of the showgirls, she became my girlfriend. She was a New York actress and dancer. So I, I, finished the year of the circus and I, it was a great experience. I loved it totally. But I felt I had enough of that experience and wanted to cons con uh, pursue my acting career. So I moved to New York with Jane 
and um, started getting some acting work. And I did a little bit, you know, a uh, couple of shows, one off Broadway, one that almost made it to Broadway. They closed while we were in previews, but I was a, I was a, um, a equity actor, so I was getting paid. Wasn't making much, but I was a professional actor. Then one day an old, uh, well, not girlfriend, an old friend who was a woman, an actress who I, I had been in the University of Minnesota theater with, she had moved to LA and she was starting to get some success in her career doing TV spots and commercials. And she was traveling through New York and we got together and she said she was thinking of getting into the, coming back to the East Coast and doing real theater, but you know, just LA was so nice. And, and, and that started me thinking about moving to LA because movies was what I was really in love with. Not just stage acting, but movies especially. So I wrote a letter to Vern Langdon saying, I'm thinking about coming out to Hollywood. Vern sends me this long four page letter in return saying, don't come out to Hollywood. It's a, it's a zoo. It's a nightmare for actors. You got catacalls, you know, auditions and people treat you like dirt. And, you know, it, it's really terrible to make a career. Of it. Well, to me, it sounded, you know, kind of like trying to get acting work in New York, but the weather was nicer. So, uh, so I, I packed up all, all my stuff and my two cats and I moved out to LA. We're getting closer now. <laughs> so, you know, while you're trying to be an actor in LA, you have to have real work. So I got a few odd jobs. My first one was actually pretty cool through a, a, um, an old theater friend, again, from the University of Minnesota. He was working at, on the lighting crew of the Rocky Horror Show. This is before the movie came out, before the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This was the LA premiere at the Roxy on the Sunset Strip. So Tim Curry was playing Frank and Furter. Um, uh, Meatloaf was in it. And so my friend Walter was on the crew and he and his wife were starting to think about moving back to LA, I mean, to Minneapolis. So he introduced me to Sid Strong, who was the light crew director. And he says, you know, Mark was in the university theater with me. He knows about lighting, all that stuff. He'd be great crew. So I got hired to, to do lighting for the Rocky Horror Show. And I was on it for about three months. It was a delight to watch Tim Curry and the rest of the cast. It was just a treat. And then while I was still doing it is when Tim and uh, Meatloaf left to make the movie. So that was my first job. But then, you know, I had to find other odd jobs here and there. And then by great coincidence, the same Vern Langdon, my makeup teacher from Clown College, who was well known for doing other things around Hollywood too, very creative guy. Um, he was, he got a contract from Universal Studio Tours to create a monster makeup show awesome. called, that would be called The Land of a Thousand Faces. And he needed a crew of people who had the right skills, you know, if not all the training, but he couldn't hire a professional makeup artists who was outside the budget. So he wound up hiring me and three other guys he knew from the circus. One of them, my close friend who I went to clown school with, who was also already a commercial artist, Bob Zrake, and then Keith Crary, who became a very well-known makeup artist eventually, who was a clown with me on the road, and another clown named Zapata Barragon, who had the skills. And between the, uh, the four of us and Vern and a couple other people they hired, we created the show, the monster makeup show. You know what? This is going to be a 
you mind me taking a little detour and finding a picture here? This is me doing my very first professional monster sculpture of Eric the Phantom, of course, Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera. That's Vern Langdon behind me. You see the caption down there. Oh, I forgot to tell you, while I was growing up and getting to the age around 10, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine first came out. And I collected them with my friend Jeff from the very first issue. And that's where I learned a lot of stuff, too, about behind the scenes thing. Well, when we opened our show in 1975, Famous Monsters, which still exists, did an article about the land of a thousand faces. So having been a fan of Famous Monsters magazine, I got to have my picture doing my first monster sculpture in Famous Monsters, which, as you might imagine, was a huge treat for me. That's very cool. Yeah. So this head was, um, I'll leave it up for just a second. This head was one of, uh, let's see, we did uh, six, seven different heads that would appear in a magic mirror illusion to start the show. Big magic mirror um, uh, above the, uh, the stage in a beautiful frame with high relief sculptures of various famous monsters and things. And it would start out with a talking skull, which would uh, transform into the spirit of the mirror, which was an old guy wearing a beard, who would introduce the show. And then it would crossfade into famous makeups from history, uh, from the movies. And it was the Phantom of the Opera, and then um, uh, Charles Lawton's, no, this was later, then uh, Karloff's Frankenstein monster, and then Charles Lawton's Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then the three characters from Wizard of Oz, the um, Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion. And all of us in the crew did some of those sculptures. So that was what that was for. And then the, the show went on to be a live demonstration, two makeup artists on stage who would um, uh, create the makeups. We had a reproduction of a... Um, a makeup studio complete with professional chairs and lighted mirrors. They'd get a couple up on the stage and we made prosthetic uh, makeups for the Frankenstein monster and the Bride of Frankenstein. And this was a new design of the Bride of Frankenstein uh, that involved um, a headpiece prosthetic and as well as, as well as a facial prosthetic. So part of the deal was standard prosthetics, you know, foam latex at the time, would just be unwieldy for a show like that. We had to do between like four shows a day or seven shows a day in the long summer days. We had to have reusable prosthetics or we had to churn them out really fast. And, you know, with foam latex, the molds break down after a while, it takes like four hours to bake them. It just was not work. So between our lab and a, a urethane chemical company, we worked with them to develop a prosthetic grade um, urethane foam. It was very soft. My partner Dave and I learned how to use it. We could make standard molds, inject them, and in 20 minutes we could pull out prosthetics. So we could turn them out really fast. Um, and you could get away with a lot. You know, the blending edges were really quite good, but you didn't need the quality you need for a close up on film because it was a big, you know, quick job on the stage. But that foam turned out to be my calling card to make my first movie. So in short, over the, the three, three and a half years that I worked for that show in, at Universal, 
I learned everything about mask making and sculpture, mold making, all the materials, casting and special makeup effects. The makeup effects business was just starting to, to grow. People like Rick Baker would come through our shop and Steve Neal, because we just we were doing cool things. And Rick at the time, he hadn't done American Werewolf yet. He had just done uh, Incredible Melting Man, I think. So besides learning all these skills, I got to know a bunch of people. So eventually, um, a couple of friends I knew, Rick Stratton and Mike Lavalley, makeup artists, got a job working for Fred Phillips on Star Trek The Motion Picture. And originally, there were not supposed to be Klingons in the movie, but kind of fan pressure uh, demanded it. And so <laughs> See? Uh, they wrote in this Klingon to scene, you know, that opens the film. Yeah. I'm sorry? I was just going to say, fans putting pressure on, on uh, uh, the studios is not new. People swear that this has not been happening, but it's... it's uh, it's an old it game. Way back. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly the case with, uh, with Star Trek. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they had to turn out nine um, Klingon characters in a really short time, like a week or a little more than a week. And, um, and they didn't know how to do it. They had the foam latex. And Rick Stratton says to Fred Phillips, well, I know this guy, Mark Siegel, who, who's one of the two people in the world who knows how to use this new soft urethane foam technology. And he could probably make it work. So I talked to him about it. They wound up hiring me and Mike, I'm gonna screen share another thing for you. Mike um, Lavallee and Rick Stratton and I, do, 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 let's see, let me find this here. Here it is. Um, we wound up each sculpting, we did, you know, life castings of the stuntmen uh, inc and including Mark Leonard, who also played Spock's father, but in this one, he was a Klingon. And we sculpted uh, and molded and cast the these three Kling nine Klingon characters and were able to get them out in a really short time. Little side story here about these. These, you remember, these are the Klingon designs for Star Trek, the motion picture. With that kind of spinal coil, I'm going over the head. That wasn't the first design the first design that uh, Fred Phillips passed on to us, you know, from the director, Robert Wise, and from Roddenberry, was he said they wanted to be bony structures that kind of looked like this. So that's how we did them. We sculpted that kind of ridge. We started calling them knuckleheads. And, uh, and then at one point, uh, Roddenberry and Robert Wise came to the shop to look at the sculptures and talk about them. And they, were, and they were both thinking, you know, yeah, that's what we asked for, but it's really kind of too subtle and we want something more dramatic. And Roddenberry came up with the idea about how about doing this extended spinal column thing, standing over the head. So we went back into it, re-sculpted them, and I guess we did what they liked because as soon as we showed them the first ones, they, they approved them. So this, from the knuckleheads, this became the first Klingons and that became my very first motion picture project. And then the rest is, you know, a lot more history, but basically my experience at Universal plus making, you know, learning all of the techniques and materials and all that stuff, plus meeting a bunch of people in the business. When I finally left Universal, it was a matter of just making a few, a few phone calls and uh, I was freelancing, wound up working in a lot of 
uh, different creature shops around LA. And then um, that's where I met Mark Brian Wilson at um, the Berman Studios. I think it might've been his first movie too. It was called One Dark Night, a little sort of haunted mausoleum movie with Meg Tilly. And we had to do some ghost figures and some scary um, mask. It was going to be like a high school kids playing a prank on a new, like an initiation prank. So we had to sculpt these kind of not very good looking monster masks that the kids would wear, but then it turns into a real scary movie. So Mark and I worked well together. I liked his work, he liked mine, and we, we just became really fast friends ever since. And then, you know, years went by and I wound up working with him again on the original Ghostbusters. So I told you, and that's the condensed version <laughs> of the history. That's so. great. I mean, I think that's that story and your story is kind of proof that there, there is never one uh, straight line to get anywhere in life. Uh, you know, that's, I, that's true. And I've given talks to uh, like groups of students in high school and college. And that's kind of part of my message, you know, is, is do what you do, do what you love to do, follow what you do. Don't give up on it because you think it's, you know, you have to be, have a responsible career or, or make money. If you really love doing something, pursue it. And, you know, if you do it enough, if you know, there's a lot of luck that goes into it, but then a lot of the luck is stuff you make yourself. Like, if you see an opportunity to be, to have the craziness or the guts to, to just be willing to follow it, that's part of it too. But but yeah, I, you know, everybody I wound up working with in my career, some of them wanted to be makeup artists or monster people from the time they were kids. Some of them, like a lot of the people in the model shop at ILM, where I wound up working, they all came into it from totally different places and never expecting to be in the doing effects in the movies. Dennis Muren himself, you know, who Dennis is, of course, you know, the legendary visual effects director. I just listened to him do a talk the other night from the Disney Museum. Um, talked the same kind of thing. He just loved making monsters and watching those movies when he was a kid. Never thought there'd be a career in it, but he just pursued it. And somebody had seen some of his childhood films and one led him to being hired by Lucas for Star Wars. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Star Trek uh, motion picture, uh, Craig's going to take my nerd card away again, but uh, 79? Was it 79 for motion picture? Um, See, yeah, something like that. 78 or 79. It was something like that. It probably was around 79. Uh, I, I may actually... 79. I can't remember if I was still working... Uh, at the Universal, at the Land of a Thousand Faces at the time. I started there in 75 and I left there about mid 78. Yeah, well, that would be about right. So if I, if, if I got the Star Trek job just shortly after or toward the end of my Universal work, sure. that would have been late 78 or early 79. So that would have be about the right time, yeah. So, you know, if we pull up your, your filmography or IMDb, it is intimidating. Yeah. Uh, the number of classic, uh, iconic films that you've worked on. Like, yeah. I, I mentioned a few of those to you in email, and it's like, every time I look at it, I see something else, and I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, we all really want to hear uh, about your time, you know, jumping forward a couple of years to 1983, you know, working on that little-known movie, 
uh, with our dear friend Mark called uh, Ghost, Ghost Smashers. Ghost, Ghost something, yeah. I can't <laughs> Uh, well, that's what I am primarily here for. I'm delighted you wanted to take the time for my background. And I hope, you know, we can do more chats in the future and focus on uh, a series of films or or one or two different films, because I have a lot of few favorites that uh, that I really like talking about that I can share images from. So, but for now, I'm happy to jump into Ghostbusters. Before we do, what's your favorite? You said you had a few favorite. What's your What's your favorite project you worked on? Well, that's easy. It's the same answer every time. If it's favorite project I ever worked on, it's Ghostbusters, the original. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. First of all, it's the most fun I ever had on any film. I mean, I've had a lot of good times on many of the films I worked on. Ghostbusters was so much fun. It was my first big, you know, it was a short stint on Star Trek. This was my first big, you know, totally involved with the crew. It was clear that the ideas were really fun and really artistically beautiful. The stuff that we were getting, we didn't see a script, only little pieces of it, but um, everything looked promising. Everything looked good. And the creatures, and you know, I was primarily on Slimer. Did a few other little things, were primarily on Slimer. And it just turned out to be so much fun. And there was a, seri a, a spirit in the shop. Everybody working on it was having this good time. And I'm sure that something, that spirit part of it leaked into the production of the film. Because the other reason it's my favorite is it, when it came out, it was just mind-blowing how great it looked and how incredibly entertaining it was. And I still watch it. It's still a really good movie. Um, some of the effects are maybe a little dated in technology, but they hold up because the context is so great. The characters are, are so great. The designs of the, of the ghosts and the ideas, it's just a great film. So that's my, that's my number one favorite, always. Like whenever we chat with somebody like Mark uh, or you know, Billy Bryan or something, it, it's always crazy to hear about the time frame and how short, how, how little time there was to do everything and how amazing the final product is as a result, or regardless of the time. We had a fabulous crew, and Steve Johnson, love Steve Johnson. He's a wacky, crazy guy, but incredibly talented and imaginative. <laughs> and um, a lot of it had to do with him and Stuart Zeff, who managed the shop. I don't know how they did it either. You know, this was still relatively new for me. And I just jumped in. I happened to be a very fast sculptor. That's just always been my, my nature and my skill, I guess, mainly because I'm really impatient. So if I don't, you know, knock out the, the basic shape and feeling of something the first day I'm on it, I, I lose it. So I tend to be pretty fast. So that helped. And everybody else had those similar skills, too. So, yeah, we did an immense amount of incredible work. Uh, a lot of the crew, most of the Stay Puft crew, came from an earlier crew just before Ghostbusters. I was the supervisor of building all the still suits for David Lynch's Dune. And um, I brought Billy Bryan in who I had met a little earlier because I saw him working on a foam sculpture. It was some of the best constructed foam sculpture, I had, the best constructed foam sculpture I'd ever seen. So when we settled on building the suits as kind of foam sculptures, piece them together. I brought Billy Bryan in and then he had a great crew and I had a great crew that we assembled. 
And many of Billy's people on the Stay Puffed crew came over from our Dune crew. Yeah, Terry uh, Harden told me a story about working on Dune and uh, standing yep. in for Sean Young at one point wearing the suit. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot. Terry got involved in other parts of it after we actually did the build. But um, yeah, I know she, she got very involved in it. I've seen Terry, I think it was oh, not, not even a year ago that I saw Terry for the, uh, again for first time in a long time. Because um, she was an Imagineer at Disney for a while. So, you know, um, except that we're closed now since I've retired from uh, makeup effects and creature work, I've been a volunteer at the Walt Disney Family Museum here in San Francisco. Uh, and what I can share with the guests is largely informed by my work, you know, plus my knowledge of Disney history and film. And Terry came up to do a talk at the Disney Museum at one point, not knowing that I was a volunteer there. So I surprised her by showing up for the talk and we got together. Well, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, Matt, uh, you have a Disney group as well. Yep. Yep. And oh, really? I, was just, I was just at Hollywood Studios today. This is why I'm a little red. It was, uh, uh -huh. But yeah, I, and I always love going through one man's dream and seeing all of Walt's stuff and his office set up. And uh, I, I'm dying to go to that museum. It's, I tell you, it, once we reopen, it is one of the most beautiful museums you'll ever see. Walt's daughter, Diane, who created the museum, did it the way her dad would have done it. It's just great attention to design and detail and the latest in audiovisual technology and a really great balance of education and entertainment. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. I love every one of my days there. It's the thing I miss most during this lockdown is not being able to go there. Yeah. But back to Ghostbusters, right? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't know how much time we have. I have all evening if you want but uh, so do i we got to talk back to the future we got to talk <laughs> there is a lot of stuff i think we'd save a lot of that but you know ghostbusters is going to be long enough just talking about that because oh, there's two ghostbusters movies. yeah yeah so you know let, tell us about your work on uh i mean it's gonna be vague but you know ghostbusters one you said slimer i, I do want to pick your brain about the other little things you said you did too because that always intrigues me you know it's always well how about how about this how about i just talk over a slideshow Okay, so this is the main Slimer puppet. And um, you can see it's covered with bits of food and things. This was right after we finished the shoot. It might have been the famous one where he's dumping food into his mouth. I, I, I'll talk about that one later. So on this one, Steve Johnson did this sculpture. That was his baby. And that was the one that we mainly used. But I did all the sculpture inside the mouth which was used in all the different puppets. Now this one is the second puppet. This was what we call the scared face or terrified face. You can see the mouth is sculpted a lot wider open. Steve thought we might use that for a few shots and we, we did, probably not as many as we anticipated. But again, that's my same teeth and tongue uh, and the inside of the mouth that I sculpted that's used in all the puppets. Um, and let's see where we go next. Okay, so here's the teeth couple of different angles. I sculpted them in clay and they're really big. You know, they're like, it's a denture about this big. <laughs> I sculpted them in clay, made a huge silicone mold and I cast them the same way they do like temporary teeth or dentures. This is all dental acrylic. The shop smelled terrible, 
but it made really great looking teeth. And then I also sculpted the tongue and that's Mark Brian Wilson wearing the tongue now. That's a casting of the teeth with some of the mouth parts, the rubber parts inside, the casting of the tongue. But I made the tongue as a as a arm puppet that fit me. And for the actual shot, I was the one operating the tongue. I'll show you that later. So um, for most of the shots, oh, okay, this is going back to the scared face that I showed you here. This is the sculpture of it. And instead of sculpting the entire puppet a second time, it made sense to me that if we took a rubber casting of Steve's puppet and just kept as much of the body as would remain the same, I could sculpt the new head expression kind of as a prosthetic to put onto it. So it saved a lot of sculpting time and we had a second puppet. And we pulled a rubber skin off it. There's me and Steve Johnson applying the skin as we would a makeup appliance to part of the original body puppet. A couple of different angles with us mugging for the camera. <laughs> I love it. That's Those like, are great. That's a great photo. Yeah. I love that shot. That's yeah, great. that's really a fun one too. Um, and so here's the scared faced puppet on the set. And uh, now with this puppet and with the original puppet, for most of the shots, you know, Mark was in, in the suit. We had a skull cap built in. Mark has probably talked to you about this. So is it okay if I repeat things? Yes, of course. Yeah. So there was a skull cap built, built in, kind of uh, fit in. Do you see where my, on the screen share, where this is, the arrow is? So the, the skull cap is probably about in here. There's a little bit of puppet above his head. And so Mark's face fit into it so that he was looking out through, this was black scrim at the back of the throat. So you couldn't, camera couldn't see in, but Mark could see out through it. And most of the time we had just a loose, a, a, a casting of the tongue that wasn't the full tongue puppet, but just kind of lying on the floor of the mouth and it would flop around just naturally as the creature's mouth moved. And Mark did all the body movement. Craig Caton was below the puppet simple mechanism. This was part of Steve's genius in designing this puppet. He wanted it to be really loose and cartoony so we could take advantage of squash and stretch. So instead of building a mouth mechanism that was all hinged and everything, there was a simple like metal bar that was in the lower lip right about here that came down on a long bar out of the bottom of the suit and uh, I think you can see part of this in the, the black thing down here at the bottom. Um, <clears throat> and then Craig Caton was below it and he could pull it open or twist it or move it from side to side and get a huge range of expression and do all, all kinds of things with it. And there is uh, the tongue just hanging out, hanging loose. And I just have a few different pictures uh, of that. And then now Mark probably told you about the drinking face puppet too. For the, for the scene in the, uh, in the ballroom where you first see Slimer, he's standing at the table and drinking from a bottle of champagne. Well, the way Steve conceived it, he said we should have a drinking face puppet so that the puppet would, um, and that, that's the finished puppet, so that the puppet could have his mouth puppeteered as if he was like actually sucking on a bottle. 
I think I have a few pictures. Uh, well, I do coming up. But this is a sculpture. Once again, I sculpted it as an appliance. Took a casting of part of the original puppet that was cut away and then sculpted it as an appliance that we could stick on to the main puppet. So all we had to do was basically put an appliance on rather than build, cast an entirely new puppet. There's me and Mark Brian Wilson with our finished puppet. I love that picture. That's great. Yeah, it's great. I like, your, I like your shirt too, Mark. Uh, this one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that one's long worn out, but that was one of my favorites. Yes. I, like, I've always loved the drinking face Slimer sculpt. Mm -hmm. We did too. And, you know, sadly, you probably heard the story that somebody saw, I don't know if, if we saw it on the set or if we had done some test footage, but somebody in production said, well, it's just too much of a change from the original puppet and it's going to confuse audiences to, is it like, is it a different ghost? And we were thinking, what, you know, there's two green ghosts who are eating and drinking things and a change of expression is going to confuse. Anyway, we never shot it for the film, but we did do puppet tests. This is John Berg, you know, legendary wow. uh, uh, creature guy, stop motion animator and creature consultant. John came up to work with the puppeteering. And I think that's Mark wearing the suit sitting down behind him. But I designed the mouth so that a puppeteer could reach up inside the suit. Uh, and the inside of those big foam lips were just carved out. So you could fit a hand in there. And he could do all kinds of things with the hand, you know, to change expression. It was a great puppet. And we only wish we had shot it. Wow. Yeah, those are some really, really awesome. I'm, I'm, I don't think I've seen majority of this stuff. I'm, no. I'm, I'm not the, uh, you guys are the historians. Every time I see a picture, I could see a picture a thousand times and to me it's the first time I've seen it. So, but yeah, this, well, this is uh, really great stuff. I can say that most of these photos are not out there. Yeah, these these are, are my own personal photos that I took on the set and that I had, you know, um, scanned, they're all still photos. And I, you know, Mark Brian Wilson has them all too, because we shared them all. But, uh, you know, a couple of them, I think, like this one of me and Mark, that's been out there, here and there, I think on, you know, Mark Wilson's sites, but, but most of these have not been seen. So yeah. uh, here we go, exclusive. And I, and I'm Let's maybe see, I'm missing it, but John Berg, I mean, he's a huge name in Star Wars. I had, I don't know that I knew, and Tom, you can, you can laugh at me if this is something you knew and I'm just late to the game, but I didn't know he worked on Slimer at all. Uh, he didn't really, and he didn't work on Ghostbusters that much. He was brought down during our puppeteering phase kind of as a consultant, and okay. I think he may have been consulting on – I'm not, I'm not certain about this, but he may have been consulting with Randy Cook about, like, stop motion for the terror dogs or something. So he was down there for a while, but I don't even know if he's credited um, on the film. But um, but John's a great guy, and his expertise was always welcome. Yeah. Now, Tom and Matt, so Slimer in the movie always appears a little bit smaller than the actual puppet. Like they scaled I will him talk, down. I will talk to you about that. Let's talk. I've always wondered about that, because I know in Ghostbusters 2, Slimer's actually bigger, uh, at least – to, to me, he's always looked bigger. So yeah, I, I would love to hear about that. It's gonna come up in a little while. 
in, okay. the sequ- cool. in the sequence. I'm going to go through some of the puppeteering soon, but I've got a whole thing planned to talk about that. That's cool. <laughs> so let's see, what's next? Yeah, Craig, we're drinking out. stuff. Sorry, I didn't okay, consult so- the slideshow ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> I like surprises. Yeah. So here we are on the set. Uh, that's Steve Johnson, who's doing final dressing on the puppet. Craig Caton, who was our mouth puppeteer, among other things, and one of our fabricators. Great guy. And for most of the shots where Mark was in the suit and when the tongue wasn't operating, um, I was one of the puppeteers. This is me down in the corner. And we had, this is old fashioned cable operated, no radio control at the time. But we had um, cable mechanisms in the suit to operate the eyebrows, uh, eye movements. I think we could uh, do a little cheek, maybe not. We could do nose movement, but I think we had four or five puppeteers doing those things. Here's another one that's a better shot of me puppeteering. Now, I I chose, I, I asked and and was awarded with doing the eyebrows. And I'll tell you about that in a little while that's coming up. But there's a particular reason I wanted to do the eyebrow puppeteering. Uh, here we are in the set. Uh, looks like Mark is in the suit at this time. His arms are in the... I can't remember who sculpted the Slimer arms. Um, I think it was Mark. I, do, I didn't remember that. It might have... I thought it was maybe Kevin Brennan. But I'm not sure. Um, I could check with Mark about that. But they were sculpted to fit Mark's arms, obviously. And that's Stuart Ziff, the, the uh, shop. Uh, overall supervisor. Okay. This is one of the reasons why I chose the eyebrows. You know the whole history of John Belushi and Ghostbusters, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I'll recap it a little bit for some of the audience who might not know. While we were working on it, we were told, you know, filtered down from production, that Slimer was the spirit of John Belushi. Because Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, when they were writing the script, well, Dan Aykroyd originally, he he was, you know, John's buddy. He wanted John to be part of the team. The time the project got going, of course, John Belushi had passed away. And then Bill Murray happily got into the mix. But, you know, Dan and and Harold always wanted Belushi to have his spirit in there. So we were told that our character... And, you know, at the time, he was not called Slimer until the movie came out. We were calling him Onion Head all the time. Um, and, uh, in fact, Mark's original crew jacket from Ghostbusters says Onion Head on it. I don't, I don't know if he told you that. So uh, when we were getting ready to puppeteer the character, we watched John Belushi on film, particularly Animal House, where he has... This is a picture of him from Animal House. That's a character of Bluto, which has a lot of the qualities of Slimer. He's really disgusting. He's shoving food into himself all the time, doing horrible things. But at the same time, he's always somehow charming and lovable. So we sat around our little TV with a VHS tape of, uh, of Animal House, and we watched frame by frame scenes of John Belushi breaking it down, looking and studying his expressions that we could, you know, incorporate into the puppeteering. And, you know, this and this, that's the reason I wanted to do the eyebrows. 
because Belushi's eyebrows expressions are so outrageously wonderful. So, you know, it's subliminal probably, but if you really watch it uh, or just feel the spirit of it, you can feel, I think, uh, the Bluto character. Uh, here's another one <laughs> using the drinking face. Yeah, I put these little montages together, you know, to kind of illustrate. Okay, I'm going to play this short scene. This is the first hallway encounter. Whoops, back it up. I'll just play through it. And then I'll stop and talk about a few things. First, I love that shot. I'm going to back it up and go through some, some things slowly here because this was probably my favorite day working on Ghostbusters, was doing this scene. So Mark is in the puppet. I do, oh, that's not what I wanted to do. The controls are a little bit different than when I'm in the movie. So I'll just have to fast frame it. I stop frame it one at a time. So Mark is wearing the suit. Now, because the tongue puppet has to work in this, I have to have my arm through the back of the head into the tongue puppet. This means that Mark can't have his head in the skull cap as he usually does. He has to be bending down. So he's working blind. He has to reach onto the, uh, we had a, a mock-up of a um, hotel, you know, cart. I think it was just a, some kind of cart, not a real hotel food service cart. But we had a cart there on the set with breakaway plates that were piled with like mashed potatoes and lettuce and jello and all kinds of crap. And, and Mark had to pick it up blind and lift it up blind and pour it into the Slimer's mouth, which meant they were going onto the tongue while I was doing the tongue movement and falling, you know, over the tongue onto the back of Mark's neck. And he'd have to do all the movement like this. So now when you see the tongue movement, oh, I'll describe it. I was jammed in right behind the puppet, like really tight with my arm through a slot behind the head, I mean, into the mouth. Steve Johnson was crammed in right behind me with his arms around me into the cheeks of the puppet. So partly what he was doing was supporting the top of the head, but he could also do cheek movements by moving his fists inside the cheeks. So the combination of that just really low-tech animation gave the character all of that movement. So I'll just kind of go through some of it slowly. Me operating all the tongue movement, licking his chops like that, Mark doing all the body movement. You can see Steve doing cheek movements there. Mm-hmm. But when we I can see, but never would have picked up until you're telling us right now. Yeah, that's that's why I like to break it down like this. And this was fun to do. Look at that. I love that tongue movement. So when we finished shooting that, you know, a take of that thing, 
we were cracking up like crazy. <laughs> we, uh, you couldn't see us, of course. We were all in black, and he was all comp anyway. But um, we were cracking up laughing after the take, and then all of a sudden there's this voice from inside the puppet going, get me out of here. This is Mark, you know, all drenched with food and stuff. It was so much fun. I'll tell you, we, nobody n knew at the time, but all of our shots we were doing with Slimer, we thought they were so funny. And uh, I remember us talking about it. We said, he's going to be a hit character in the movie. And sure enough, he turned out to be, you know, even got his own animated TV show and everything. Because, uh, you know, we could just feel it doing that performance, that Slimer would be that kind of character. I'm going to go through and show you some other cool things in this shot. Okay, so again, that's Mark and the Puppet. This is just the loose tongue now. I'm not operating it because you don't really see it. Because he has to do the big body move where he turns around. And, um, and it was a camera move. For some of the shots, we had Mark on like a turntable and things. So a combination of the turntable and the camera moving to do those shots. But my next bit of work was at the end of the shot. See that little green Slimer going down the hallway there? There he is. That is a little tiny sculpture that we called Bullet Slimer. And that's my sculpture of it. And you can see by the size of the quarter how tiny the sculpture is, about three inches long. So for that shot, the uh, animation de department thought, well, we don't have to use the whole puppet. We want to look like he's speeding through. So let's have a bullet-shaped Slimer. And they could just set it up on the animation stand and shoot it as a separate element to go through the wall like that. So now, I sculpted that little tiny one as well. It's very cool. I, I've I love seen that. these before, Mark. Did you? I'm sorry? Did you do um, like runs of this or casts? Because I've seen those before the Bullet Slimer. Fans have these. Um, well, we, we did a mold off of this because we cast it in foam rubber for the animators to use. What happened after that, I don't know. Commercially, some people might have made them. That I don't know. But this was the one that was used for the movie or casting of it. And then at the same time, I did, I did, oh, here's some of the other shots. It was used for when, it, when he was flying around the uh, chandelier. First time you see him, you know, in the ballroom scene. But then I also sculpted this one. You can see about the same scale, a little more than three inches tall. And this was also used in the ballroom scene. And there he is, I sculpted little arms. So we had a little rubber puppet and I think that's a still frame for where that little puppet was used when they shoot him in the ballroom scene. I think that's it. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about scale that you were talking about you earlier, Craig. So yes, the actual Slimer was supposed to be a lot smaller, like maybe a third of the size, half the size, I'm not exactly sure, of a big guy like Mark in a suit. And where it really shows up is in the scene where he pops out of this hot dog cart on the street and has to eat a bunch of hot dogs. So because of the scale of it, I had to make hot dogs this big, you know, this big around and this big so that they would be in the proper scale 
to work with the puppet. So, so you're a Slimer sculptor and hot dog maker? And hot dog maker. And how I came up with making the hot dogs is really fun and very ingenious, I think. I took a length. I figured out what the scale would be to get the hot dogs proper diameter. And then I took a long piece of PVC pipe, you know, polyvinyl chloride, like plumbing pipe, that had the right interior di diameter. We mixed up a batch of uh, foam latex that was pigmented, pre-pigmented in hot dog color and poured it into this long tube and then baked it in an oven so I could pull out this long hot dog diameter, hot dog colored tube. And then I cut it into the proper lengths. And then just like they make real hot dogs, I would cinch the ends together and tie them so that they looked like sausages on the end. Made a whole group of them. And then I tied them onto some monofilament. So I'm behind, uh, I can't remember exactly where I was. I might've been under the puppet at this point um, with the, the hot dogs in his mouth. I thought I had animation of this. Oh yeah, I do. So there he is. We started with him with the hot dogs in his mouth. He pops up out of the lid. And, and as he chews, uh, and I'm guessing that was Craig Caton again, operating the mouth. But as he's chewing, I'm just pulling that whole, you know, bouquet of hot dogs in through his mouth. I, I had no idea that those were fake hot dogs my entire life. It makes sense now but it never occurred to me. <laughs> well, you know, that's our job, of course, is to, <laughs> to, fool, to fool you. But it just had to be. There's no other way around it because you couldn't buy hot dogs that big to make him work in that scale. I wish that you could. I would take a hot dog that big. Tell you what. Yeah, I probably would too, actually. <laughs> but uh, that's how we did it in those days. And um, it was a pretty clever solution, I think, and, and just a great funny shot. I feel like if those hot dogs would have survived, like, it's one of those, you, you know, we follow these prop auctions and it's amazing how movie memorabilia of any kind, but especially stuff like that just keeps increasing in value. Like I could yeah. see a set of Ghostbusters screen used hot dogs going for, you know, $10,000 and just being like. That, that would be pretty funny. I think some of the Klingon headpieces did. The problem with the hot dogs and a lot of the puppet stuff in those days was they were made of foam latex. Right. You know, and that's notorious for breaking down in sunlight and ozone. So after, you know, not that long, especially after years, it gets brittle and just starts breaking apart. So I don't know if those hot dogs ever would have survived. <laughs> but uh, the reason the Klingons did for that we did for Star Trek, because I know some of them are on display. I had a casting of one that I gave to Bob Burns for his museum, if you know about Bob, because they were made out of this urethane foam. So they'll last like forever. Anyway, okay, so on to some of my other Ghostbusters work. This, I don't know, have you ever seen these? Is that the subway ghost? No. This is for something that was never seen on film. Okay. The library transfer, librarian transformation at the beginning, which Steve Johnson designed, one of the most brilliant transformations, transformation mechanisms ever originally was going to go to a stage beyond what you see on film 
there's going to be a cutaway from, you know, the librarian does that thing. It turns into a monstery face. And then there's going to be a second cut where she was even more monstery with a long gated snout and this tongue. So I, I made these uh, teeth and this tongue. This was going to be the second stage of the librarian transformation. And, and I think I vaguely remember Steve doing a sculpture of the elongated face that that would fit into. There's just another view of the tongue and the, and the teeth. Ultimately, it was decided, and wisely so, that the first transformation was so dramatic and perfect. Putting anything on top of it would just kind of undercut the effect. So even Steve agreed that we didn't need this. But, but this, this was actually being manufactured. So that's another one of my sculptures. Now, they reused that final transformation puppet on Fright Night. Did they reuse that's the that's very possibly i I did not work on fright night, so I don't know yeah. um, what was involved, but yeah, since Steve was the creature soup on that one that that's very likely that's something I didn't know actually, yeah, so I, I can get myself credit on fright night, huh yeah, you might have you might have credit for those teeth <laughs> <laughs> that's great so uh, this is just my last shot from. Uh, the crew picture of Ghostbusters, the original. There's Mark Brian Wilson in his Slimer arms and doing a Slimer expression. This is me and Steve Johnson right here with the puppet and uh, the whole crew. So many, I mean, this was, like I said, this was just so much fun. This an entire pleasure to work on all the way through. And I think my next image is going to be Ghostbusters 2. So if you have any more Ghostbusters 1 questions, shoot. So, well, I guess, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, when, you know, when, when you work on these things and then, you know, you, you, you put all this work and effort, you say it's such an incredible time. And then there's this period where you, everybody, everybody who ever works on a movie or a film set talks about you become this family and then everybody kind of goes their separate ways. Um, but you talked about earlier, you know, the movie comes out and it's just such a phenomenon. Um, you kind of said you had a little bit of an idea that Slimer would be a hit. Uh, mm -hmm. Did it take you by surprise, though, to see? Uh, I mean, obviously, we're, the fact that we're still talking about it, you know, almost yeah. 40 years later is crazy. But it, in the time, in 1984, when it was released, I just kind of wonder what your personal experience was uh, knowing, you know, hey, everybody's freaking out oh. about Slimer. And that was me. I, I can't say I was really surprised by it because in a way I think I, I and the rest of the crew expected it because we, you know, we'd seen dailies. We knew the quality of the work. Um, what, what maybe surprised me was just how good the film was overall and how funny apart from our effects. Um, we were, I mean, all of us were just delighted as heck to see it. Uh, so one thing that does happen to me from time to time I can't remember if it happened on Ghostbusters. I don't think so. But um, sometimes so much time will go by between the time I work on something and the time the film comes out. I mean, it can be many months. It can be a year even from my work until uh, I see it on the screen. And I've had it happen a couple of times where I see something on a screen and I say, wow, that's really cool. Oh, I did that. <laughs> so that has happened a few times. The Ghostbusters, I mean, we, we all loved it. And, you know, we were beyond a family that just worked on that film. 
because at the time, the LA creature community was really small and tight knit. We all worked on different projects, but we'd all circulate between a relatively small number of creature shops. So all of us, you know, would be working with the same people in different places from time to time. So we were really a long extended family. Practically everybody in this picture I had worked with on multiple uh, films. So it was more than just your standard get together and make a movie family. It was a real creature making community. This was long before any digital stuff, of course. I love looking through all the Easter eggs that I, I, I see, like uh, the guy behind Mark in the white shirt looks like the terror dog glove uh, that, that grabs Dana through the couch. Oh, wait, are we talking about this one? No, the one. Oh, oh this one here. Yeah. Yeah. Who, oh, I can't remember his name, but I think that was. Yeah. And then is that uh, the one of my other buddies, Neil? Steve Neal? There's Steve with one, another one of the hands. Steve that... Neal worked on the original terror dog. He was one of the hands that grabbed Sigourney. Okay, and I then you right, behind, to... right behind your head, Mark, it looks like, is that the uh, face cast for the librarian? Uh, yes, I believe you're right. I never even noticed that myself. Just keep looking <laughs> at myself, you know. <laughs> there's, there's Terry, Terry yep. Harden there, uh, the puppet. This is Bill Bryan. He's wearing one of the Stay Puffed gloves. Oh, yeah. Was that, it's hard to tell, I don't think it is, but holding the, the librarian head, that's not Tim, is it? I can, it looks like it could be Tim, but I, I, don't, Tim, think I don't think it is. Um, this was, um, oh God, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name. He came out, th this is Barney Berman, son of, uh, I mean, not Barney, uh, t uh, Rob Berman, uh, son of Tom Berman, brother of Barney Berman. Rob came in and mental block because I know his name. I worked with him a lot uh, at the Berman Studios where I did several projects with Mark. Okay. So, um, so that's not Tim. Which Tim were you referring to? Uh, Tim Lawrence. Tim. No, Tim did not work on the original Ghostbusters. He was Ghostbusters too. Well, Tim was in the, um, he did the inside the puppet for the terror dog with Mark. Mark Wilson. Oh, you know, I I actually didn't remember that because I was um, I was not on that crew, and I think they were pretty much finished with the terror dog, dog sculpt by the time they brought the Slimer crew in. Yeah. So I'm sorry, Tim, rest <laughs> his soul. Um, but uh, I I actually did not know that. The Slimer team and the terror dog team they don't mix. You, you can't. <laughs> it's like rival uh, rival yeah. crews. Right. Well, I, I think if there, if no more, we can move on to Ghostbusters too, if you like. Yeah, I, th I think you know Ghostbusters is obviously a huge success, uh, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it. But you know, we've heard from multiple people there Ghostbusters two. You even have copies, a couple of scripts. Slimer was in it. Slimer was out. Slimer was in it. So yep. take us down memory lane. Well, so here's my story. After uh, many years in LA, a lot of things I won't go into, but I decided. I wanted to move away from LA. I was kind of tired of the smog environment and other things were happening in my life. I needed a big change. And by happy coincidence, um, I got a phone call from a, a small uh, visual effects company. It used to be McVeigh and Vogt, Joe Vogt and Tony McVeigh who had commercial company. They got famous at the time for doing a, a public service commercial uh, 
anti-smoking commercial that had a puppet of a baby, a fetus smoking a puppet. So the, then these other investors kind of bought them out, took over the company. But on the strength of that work, they started seeking out contracts to do effects like that for, um, for movies and commercials. And finally, they landed their first motion picture that required some creature effects, uh, which was Look Who's Talking. If you remember that, that's with uh, Kirstie Alley and um, uh, was it uh, um, John Travolta, Travolta and yeah. Bruce Willis as the voice of the talking baby. And yep. they not only needed to create the baby puppets, but they needed this whole beginning of the film, the title sequence, was sperms being shot into, you know, the interior of a woman of the reproductive system, the sperm swimming and then, you know, impregnating an egg and all of that stuff. That's so this was the big works. sequence. I'm sorry? That's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow this company had interviewed me like a year before and they were starting, they got their first contract and they were calling some people they had interviewed and they reached me and they asked me to come up to interview to head up the creature shop. And so I, I flew up to San Francisco and met with them and talked about my experience. And, you know, they showed me what we wanted to make and I gave them some ideas. And they wound up hiring me on the spot. So that became why I moved to San Francisco. And um, I got a lot of people onto our team. I, I contacted some people I knew from ILM. A lot of them were working, but they referred me to other people. So we put together a pretty cool crew and, and, and did all the effects. We created all the interiors, fallopian tubes, giant gelatin eggs, whole bunch of different scale sperm. And we used big water tanks. Gary Platic was the water tank expert. And, and we created and shot all of these impregnation uh, uh, sequences. So that's that really not to interrupt you, Mark, but um, yeah. look who's talking was a big movie uh, for my family growing up. We watched it oh, a yeah. lot. And um, if anybody doesn't know this opening title sequence, go back. It's genius. And it's so cool. I had no idea that, it, you know, you worked on that. And it's, uh, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but I've probably seen it 50 times. But so. you know what? If I don't mind taking the time. I think I have a copy of that video. It's it's worth watching. To... No, I mean it's I, I feel like that's that's it's funny, there's multiple uh, Look Who's Talking movies. The the Look Who's Talking trilogy, I don't know if Time remembers it as well as I do, but that was a that was a big uh, that was a big movie. Yeah, and the original I thought I I saw the second one because I didn't work on it, a lot of my friends did. And I thought the second one was pretty good, but um, the first one I think is really a classic. Yeah, walk us through these uh, sperm here. It oh, really man, is. You know, this is. This is another entire conversation, but I'll try to tell you. Where you get a parental advisory? Uh, yeah. No, no, it's biology. It's fine. So this is an all fabric environment. We used uh, like a silk-like fabric. We we made the eggs out of. Um, you probably can't hear the sound of this, right? Because I'm going through my earphones. Right, right. We made the eggs out of gelatin different scale eggs. One of them was like really big and different layers of gelatin. The sperms were like from this big to this big for different shots. This they're dropping vertically down a uh, 
inside the fallopian tube environment in a like 10 foot tall water tank. These are also the same tank, but shot horizontally. Well, the camera's horizontally because they're just falling. These are larger scale um, sperms that we were pulling through the back of the environment. These are like four or five sperms mounted on a little rack in front of the camera. So they were traveling in front of the camera as it was tracking down a horizontal uh, water tank. And we could pull a little lever to make them go up and down. But all the tail movement is all just free animation as it wiggled in the water. So interesting. I mean, this, and it's also, when you look at a sequence like this, and this is just the opening of the movie, and obviously beyond this uh, sequence, it's not a, an effects-heavy movie. It's a comedy. Yeah. Um, but obviously this would all be done digitally now, and it just... Uh, it, it would be, be totally same. digital now, yeah. yeah. But we had to do this all practically. It's, you know rubber and vinyl and silk and and gelatin and water that is so interesting yeah definitely uh implanted in my brain uh, i don't think i understood it when i was watching it at five years old but i knew i liked it I was, oh there's like this cool part at the beginning where there's like monsters and i don't know what it means but it's great <laughs> so anyway that's, that's the introduction. So I was working on that. The production was coming to an end. And by that time, I was really getting disillusioned with this particular company because uh, they weren't very well managed. We were having problems with the crew getting paid, stuff like that. So I knew I was not going to do another project with them. And then just by a stroke of good fortune, I learned through the grapevine that my old friend from LA, Tim Lawrence, was hired to be the creature shop supervisor on Ghostbusters 2, which ILM had gotten as a, a project. Now I had wanted to work for ILM for a long time. I had talked to some people up there while I was still in LA. In fact, at one point they even offered me a job, um, but I had just taken on the job of, uh, what was it, it was Poltergeist 2 at, in LA at Boss Films you know, with a lot of the same crew with Steve Johnson and the gang and just my own sense of ethics. Much as I wanted to work at ILM, I had to turn them down because I would, didn't want to break my deal with, uh, with Boss. So I said, sorry. In retrospect, it turned out to be a wise decision because that film was Howard the Duck. And, uh, you know, it turned out to be kind of a nightmare project for the model shop crew. Interesting. So anyway, long history of me wanting to be at ILM. That was like the dream creature job, right? So, um, so I learned that uh, Tim Lawrence was uh, being hired for Ghostbusters 2 at ILM. So I just called up Tim. I said, Tim, you know, I live in San Francisco now. So you should just hire me for Ghostbusters 2. He said, okay. <laughs> he said, well, I have to check with production. But he did, you know, and I had built enough credits by then that they had no trouble hire, hiring me. And at this time it was primarily for Slimer work because as you said, he was in and out of the script. But at this time he was in, so they brought me onto the Ghostbusters crew. So this was my first project on Ghostbusters 2, was doing a Slimer maquette, the basic one on the uh, left and the uh, equivalent sort of scared face one on the right. And, um, Actually, I, I have to, I'm always very open about this. 
I sculpted the body. I did not sculpt the arms. Those were sculpted by Howie Weed. Oh, yeah. Howie. So he was one of my first buddies at ILM. We worked together on this. And then for 25 years between practical and digital, Howie's like become one of my best buddies. So Howie did the arms. I did the body. And this is the finished casting, finished painted casting of Slimer for Ghostbusters 2. Now, did you have now, it? Was there any direction from production on, on did, what, what does that look like? They're going back into the sequel. It's the same character. Are they saying okay. we need updates or? This, yeah, this was part of the deal. And honestly, um, I think Slimer and Ghostbusters 2 is problematic. And part of the problem was that he had become so popular. Not only was he popular in the movie, but he had his own cartoon show where he became a lot more stylized. So when he came in, and I don't know the whole chain of command, but production was overseeing the uh, art direction, which was coming through um, you know, ILM art direction and our visual effects soup, Dennis Muren, and Tim Lawrence down to Henry Mayo. Hank Mayo was doing all of the concept drawings of Slimer. And, um, and I think, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but unfortunately the design was leaning, like Henry's drawings were leaning very much toward the design of the character in the cartoon show, you know, which was oversimplified, but he, you know, he fleshed it out a little bit more, but it had a lot of this cartoon character that you see here. And, you know, I didn't have much to say about it. I was hired crew. And I mean, even if I did, I don't know if I would have, I was just so happy to be on the film that when they said, this is the design we wanted to go for, that's what I did. Um, so this became the design of Slimer 2. And unfortunately, again, it was partially responsible to leading to some other problems down the line that I'll get into a little bit. So um, that was the original maquette. Uh, we created the puppet. This is Tim Lawrence now. And um, I, w I don't know exactly what we're talking about, but this is the puppet head that was cast in foam latex as usual. But um, you know, it had a complex mechanism designed by Al Coulter that was really sophisticated between radio control, um, servo motors and uh, pneumatic cylinders moving a lot of things. So I'll try to go into some of the problems technically that we had. Tim's original idea before we built this puppet was, was I thought maybe a really cool idea. He wanted to make a miniature rod puppet. Maybe Slimer would be only about this big, you know, complete with arms and everything, but a complex rod puppet because we had the technology now to really erase rods and puppeteers really effectively. And Tim thought by doing that, we could make maximum use of making a really flexible puppet where he could do a lot of cartoon squash and stretch. So there was a lot of talk about that. But um, again, I don't know the reasons or the decisions behind the scenes, but Dennis Muren uh, as visual effects supervisor called the decision that he wanted it to be a puppet similar to the original puppet because it worked so well. So, you know, there's logic behind that as well. But then there were a lot of differences. Because of this uh, new body design, 
Tim thought that we could cast the head in foam latex, you know, and build it like a standard mechanized puppet. But then he thought, trying to do the squash and stretch stuff again, that we'd build a big like beanbag body built on uh, several layers of like beanbags, basically, that could flop against each other. And we could attach them with bungees and make them stretch and pull and flop. And uh, Kamala Henneman was in charge of uh, constructing those. And it was pretty cool. And it seemed to work pretty well. And then rather than putting foam latex all over it, Tim thought we could get away with just painting the surface, you know, with the warts and the textures and stuff. You know, in retrospect, unfortunately, it turned out that the rubber face and the fabric body, even with the best paint on it, just did not photograph the same. It looked totally different. So this was like the day before we were to shoot it. I uh, took this beanbag body into the, into the foam baking, big foam booth. And with uh, some of the other crew, we mixed up batches of foam latex and had to work really fast before it gelled. And we spatulated foam latex over the entire surface and sculpting the foam latex as we went between texture pads to get all the warts and building up bumps and warts and, you know, kind of random uh, ugly monster surface and then just baked it on the spot. So it looked a lot better, but unfortunately it lost all of that beanbag flexibility that was the main purpose of building it that way to begin with. So that was another problematic thing. Again, the other problem I saw with it, and again, impossible to foresee because we had brilliant mechanical guy, Al Coulter, building these really cool radio controlled mechanics to do all the facial expressions, which, you know, was better than doing our old radio um, cable control stuff. But he also thought that, well, he would do a jaw mechanism as a radio control mechanism too. So he had this big cylinder, you can kind of see some of it built into the jaw. And I don't even know if I questioned it at the time, but I remember wondering, the original Slimer was so flexible, we could just do anything with that mouth because there was no structure in it. And this suddenly started limiting the structure. So, and that's ultimately what I thought started happening when we were puppeteering it. Again, I puppeteered the eyebrows by radio control. But, you know, when they were puppeteering the jaw, as big a movement as it had, it was never as big and broad and comical and, you know, cartoony as the original one. So the mechanism itself was starting to get in the way of the puppet animation. Plus the fact, uh, you know, because he was supposed to be small and they hired uh, Robin, who I adore, you know, she's a wonderful performer, wonderful puppeteer, but Robin is, you know, like half the size of Mark B. Wilson. And we were building a puppet that was like four times the weight of the one that Mark had to support. So all of these little things that for me and probably a lot of other people, we could not have foreseen ahead of time. And I think unfortunately it kind of compromised to that character for, for that film. Um, I mean, he still works. He still got some funny scenes. And I think we did some decent performances, but the design of it and the limitations of the puppet were always a problem. So, you know, I hate to be negative about it, but that's just kind of the reality of sure. uh, production. There's this uh, 
Craig, maybe you can help me with this one. Uh, there's this urban legend about Slimer at the end of Ghostbusters 2. Uh oh, um, here we go. On Ellis Island, there's this urban legend that, that some people seem to remember Slimer flying, I don't know, out of the Statue of Liberty or away from the Statue of Liberty toward the camera, much like he did at the end of the first Ghostbusters film. But some people seem to remember seeing that in theaters, some people don't. It's like the Mandela effect. I don't remember working on any of that. We probably would have if we were puppeteers, yeah. unless they did it as a separate element. And I certainly don't remember seeing it. What about you guys? I do. <laughs> I do remember seeing it, but... You really? On, in yeah. the film? Yeah, but I mean, I was five when that movie came out, so... Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to watch the film again. Or is it, or is it something that might have been in the original cut that was taken yeah. out? Yeah, like the original cut, because it's not in there now. Um, I think it's one of those things where it's, uh, isn't it, there's like a novelization that describes it that way, or maybe it was in the script, and uh, I, I don't remember it seeing that way, but I don't remember anything the past two weeks ago, so I'm not who you should ask. So I, I'm the guy who swears I saw Sinbad in a movie called Kazam, so. No, you definitely did not. <laughs> you definitely did not. Um, so that's really interesting. I think like fans overall, like everybody prefers the Slimer from the first movie, but I think within the Ghostbusters fandom, Ghostbusters 2 as a whole is, is got so much love and like, it's really cool. Like over time that movie has gained more of a, I, I know critically it didn't do as well. And I don't think, you know, I, that's just so much pressure on the entire crew top to bottom trying to follow it up. Is. Uh, the first well, movie. I, I agree that it, uh, that it's gotten better with time. I watched it again not that long ago. Um, and there is a lot of love in it. There's certainly a lot of love that we put into it while we were working. And, um, uh, you know, and it, it holds up. It's just really hard to be the sequel to a classic. Yep. I'm not sure what my next picture is. Oh, that's this one. Before I go on to this, I'll talk a little about, I don't have any pictures of it, but I did little bits of work on a lot of uh, Ghostbusters too. I did some puppeteering work on the Slime River. I remember being under this big, I don't know, must have been a 20 or 30 foot long tank of pink slime with rods up through the bottom of the slime with little slime tentacles on rods, puppeteering, things like that. I did, um, Richard Miller was our senior sculptor, the brilliant figure sculptor. And Richard Miller did the, the large scale head of the Statue of Liberty that you see in the close-up shots, like when they're walking in the river. It's like a, a bust from like here up of Statue of Liberty. I helped Richard a little bit on that. Not very much. His work, his, it's entirely his work on the face and the head. I helped him with some of the clothing just to have more people on it. But then I did help him uh, extensively on, um, on the bodysuit for, um, uh, you know, the walking Slimer puppet sculpted a lot of that stuff, which was just a full, um, you know, uh, uh, foam rubber suit. And um, I think, well, yeah, Bill Forrest sculpted the head of that one. So I did work like that, you know, generally around on the crew, but most of my work was supposed to focus on Slimer. So now this guy comes in sometime while we were working on Ghostbusters 2, Production got a request from Planet Hollywood that they wanted a Slimer figure for uh, their 
Planet Hollywood restaurants, you know, which at the time were all filled with props and things from different movies. So they came to ILM because we were working on Ghostbusters 2. And I being the Slimer sculptor, they came to me to sculpt the figure of Slimer. I mean, the ILM, Luca, um, ILM uh, Ghostbusters production came to me. And because by this time, I kind of realized some of the design problems of Slimer 2. I took it on myself, and it was okayed by everybody up the line, but I took it on myself to try to bring him back a little closer to the original Slimer. So I can, you know, I've kept some of the cartoony expressions and stuff that we had. I couldn't vary that much from the puppet we were doing in the film, but I thought it would be appropriate to get him back as much as I could, kind of a compromise between the two. And I was pretty happy with this result, and I think everybody else was. So this is just a couple of other angles of him. And unlike, you know, when we sculpt it and build a puppet for uh, puppeteering and animation in a film, that always has to be sculpted in a totally neutral pose, and all the animation is built in by the puppeteers and the mechanisms and whatever. But because this was a display figure, I could build in a wacky expression and the floppy tongue and the hand position. So that was really a fun sculpture to do. And then our crack mold team, you know, did a big silicone mold of my uh, clay sculpture, cast it up in fiberglass. I really like this um, one. And then that is the same sculpture that's hanging on the walls of ILM in the Presidio. That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah. And that whole room, actually, there are up on the other walls. I don't have pictures of them, but there are there are figures of... Uh, um, What's his name? Uh, 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 the the Scolari brothers. Uh, oh yeah. Um, Tony and Nunzio. What were the names? Uh, Tony Nunzio. And Nunzio. Tony and Nunzio. Yeah. So they're up in like this corner, and just below that is a. Um, uh, well, I'll show you in this picture. The door right to screen right here is um, that's uh, the door to the big digital model shop where I worked for about 10 years. So I don't know if you recognize this guy. Uh, uh -huh. oh, yeah. yep, we sure that, that is, yes, that is Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman and really brilliant director in his own right. And one day, I think this was back in 2010, um, you know, ILM has a speaker series, and every once in a while, they would get a filmmaker, a director, an actor, a writer, whatever capacity, sometimes more than one. They would screen one of their films for us and then do a whole Q&A over lunchtime. And one day, the guest was Jason Reitman with Anna Kendrick. They came to talk about Up in the Air, which I loved. Great film. So I attended the talk. And then later on, I was back in my little room back there behind the door, working on whatever project I was working on at the time. And I hear that there's a tour group being led through the standard tour of ILM after Jason's talk. And I, and I knew it was Jason in the group. So not wanting to be left out, I rushed out of the room and introduced myself to Jason Reitman. I told him that I did this Slimer sculpture. Um, by the way, this is kind of the old dried up skin from the puppet with what's left of the mechanism. 
in the caves below it. But I told Jason that I did the Slimer sculpture and that opened a lot of doors. He thought that was so cool because he had such great memories that he grew up, he told me, with a sculpture of Slimer on his dad's desk. And so he was more than happy to take this photo with me of um, who I was together with Slimer. I bet if you would have asked him that day if he would ever direct a Ghostbusters movie, he would have laughed said, of course not. That is ridiculous. I, I have no idea. Very, very, very likely. But I, you know, <laughs> I am honestly really glad that he's doing the new one, partly because I respect his work so much as a director. Yeah. And he has a subtle sense of comedy that's really character driven. That was the essence of the original Ghostbusters. And he has a sense of charm and, and good taste. Um, if anybody can do a good Ghostbusters movie, I think Jason could do it. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this film. I agree. Yes, too. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. my Slimer, too. Oh, one thing I want to add about, you know, Steve Johnson, every time I get together with him, you know, he he has terrible things to say about Slimer from Ghostbusters, too, yeah. which, you know, I can understand. But then he was up in the Bay Area at one point. I can't remember what the event was, but, uh, but I gave him a, a, a little walking through tour of ILM and pointed out my Slimer sculpture you know, told him that I had tried to bring it back from the new one to closer to the original. And Steve said he actually thought this was a good one. So I'm happy to get Steve Johnson's seal of approval on it. That's awesome. Yeah, it was interesting seeing the maquettes too. The early maquettes that you did looked closer to the first film than what ended up on screen in, in part two. But yeah, right there part, part of that, of course, was some of the, the technical limitations we had with the puppet. Yeah, yeah. that I wish we could foresee, you know, but that's the movies. You're doing everything as fast as you can, as well as you can, and you can't foresee all the problems. Mm -hmm. You know, 30 years before, you know, 20, 30 years later, <laughs> in retrospect, I can point them out. Well, it's so cool. Anyway, for... that's my Ghostbusters slideshow. I'm open to tell you or ask anything, uh, to ask anything else you want or Well, whatever. I just wanted to, I wanted to thank you because like, to, for fans, you know, we're, we're the hardcore fans and we, we, you hear a lot of the, listen, we love Dan Aykroyd and we love Ernie Hudson and we love Ivan Reitman and their stories are great, but we've been hearing the same versions of those stories for a very long time. So to get this kind of intricate and uh, intimate detail of, of the behind the scenes stuff and what goes into, uh, you know, creating these uh, characters and puppets is, uh, is really special for us. So I just appreciate the, the stories and your willingness to share. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it too. I'm not out there as much, you know, Mark Brian Wilson being the, you know, he is Slimer. You know, he does more appearances. I don't really do the conventions and things. Uh, he does appearances and signings and he's got a little, a little more public uh, presence than I do. I'm just not really out there, but I love talking to people about it. And like you guys who really appreciate it on a deep level. So I am delighted to be able to talk with you and share with all the fans who might be out there looking at us. Yeah, and it's amazing. We've learned so much. Uh, it kind of started because, like, I when I first met Mark a couple of years ago, I asked him. I was like, I was just fan. I was like, can I have your autograph on something? And he's like, well, let's have breakfast. And and we ended up going to breakfast. And I sat there for a couple hours and just heard his stories. And and I was like, yeah. these stories aren't out there. You know, you yeah, can do, that's true. go to a convention and, and see a panel or, you know, uh, the documentary that came out did a great job, but they have a limited time. It's, it's like, 
if, if you're part of that documentary, they're getting a snippet. And here we have a long form. We're able to get all the details out and preserve that. And that's kind of what, I mean, we, we joke that we're like the story preservation society for Ghostbusters. Yeah, really? Well, I think it's great to have this. You know, you know about the new documentary that's just getting released in England, Cleaning Up the Town? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep, yep, yep. Um, I'm interviewed in that as well. Right. And so I have a little bit, I, I talk a little bit about like shooting the tongue scene and the Belushi stuff, you know, but it's just a tiny snippet of what you guys just yeah. got here. Yeah. So you, you um, I love that documentary, by the way. I, I was over in England visiting um, uh, Anthony and Claire who made the film and they showed me a rough cut before uh, the final cut. I think it's a brilliant documentary. I can't wait till it's out there in more general release for the public. It's one of the best I've seen, one of the most complete. So cleaning up the town, all you fans, watch for it. <laughs> Big promo for Anthony and Claire Bueno. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great. I think um, that's talk about a passion project. I mean, they've, they've worked on it for so long, and there's just so much. I mean, it's got to be hard as a documentary filmmaker to, to take it all and compile it into an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes because, I mean – we're we're at an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> we're just I, I like know. scratching the surface on one aspect on one of a, you know a much larger thing so yeah well i know it was a problem for them originally it was going to be a documentary that uh, included both ghostbusters one and two yeah and ultimately they realized it was too much even ghostbusters one was hard to compress into a feature length you know and there eventually hopefully will be a completely second one about ghostbusters yeah. two because they interviewed all of us Right. Well, I appreciate all your stories about Ghostbusters 2 as well, because there just doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, it, it just, it either wasn't documented as well, or people just, the, the folks who worked on it don't have, I mean, even there's a, they finally did a, a director's commentary for Ghostbusters 2 with, oh. Ivan, right, with Ivan and Dan Aykroyd and Joe Medjuk, and you kind of get the feeling that they don't really remember much of making that movie. Like, it doesn't have the same, uh, you yeah. know, emotional impact as the first one does um but like yeah. like we talked about most most sequels don't so yeah and you know and again like you were talking about when um ivan reitman and um uh harold ramus you know were talking doing the commentary they weren't in the trenches with us and you know some of the great stories come from behind the scenes from the effects artists and the makeup artists and the sure. uh, creature people and all that who worked on these movies We've got a lot of fun stories. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you don't get a lot of that on the commentary unless you kind of seek us out in the dredges of movie society. <laughs> <laughs> the dredges of movie society. Now, that, there's something there. I don't know if that's a, a series or a show or a podcast, but that's great. Yeah, you know, I don't know if they've ever done a TV comedy series about a creature shop. I think it would be pretty funny. Oh, yeah. We've, uh, this year, we've been, you know, Zoom everybody's at home so zoom's been really helpful and we've been you know chasing down kind of the unsung heroes um yeah. you know the franchise and doing these interviews and so you know we're we're so excited to chat with you and you know we have a long list there's a lot of people that worked on these movies and and we're helping. hey before we go i just noticed i'm looking behind me you want to get a tour of some of my treasures sure. yeah yeah we yeah. have to look things too okay Whoop. Yeah, I unplugged. That's all right. It's a laptop. Okay, I can have to see what I'm looking at. First of all, this is not an Oscar. This is, if you look closely, this is a statue of C-3PO. Ah. Oh, yeah. this, is, this is the award one gets 
doing 20 years at ILM. Oh, wow. That's cool. That is. This uh, little 20,000 leagues under the sea thing. Hold on. I'm going to slew you around here so I can turn on the switch. Oh, nice. Very cool. Oops. Yeah. What am I doing? Okay. Uh, Mark, Brian, Wilson, and I are both huge 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fans. So Mark made this for me. This was a special gift from Mark. Oh, that's so cool. Um, let's see. Coming over here, this is my beautiful model of the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. As I said, I'm a huge Nautilus fan. 20,000 Leagues came out in 1954 when I was seven years old. I saw the original release of it. And I loved it. And I think that's probably formative in my movie career as well. And in fact, one of the things I do as a volunteer on the Walt Des at the Walt Disney Family Museum is on the days that I volunteer, I do a short talk in one of the galleries where we have one of the original concept models of the Nautilus. And I do a short talk about how the Nautilus was designed and shot for the movie. So if you ever come up to the Disney Museum, there'll be my special guests there and you can hear my Nautilus talk. Well, we 100% are going to. Yeah, yeah, that's happening. <laughs> that's happening, right. This is really cool. This is a picture of a postage stamp that came out in, uh, what was it, 2003? I don't know if you saw this series of stamps. It was called Behind the Scenes, uh, Filmmaking Behind the Scenes. And um, it was a pane of 10 stamps, each one dedicated to one of the behind the scenes crafts of screen, you know, uh, screenwriting, directing, costuming, makeup, and all of that. And they chose my sculpture of E.T. I did this for the 20th anniversary special edition of E.T. This picture here, if you can see it. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's the, the studio shot. Uh, this is really hard to do. Where's the camera on this thing? So that's a, the shot of me sculpting that maquette of E.T. for um, uh, when, when Spielberg did his 20th anniversary special edition, he wanted to replace some of the puppet shots that he thought were clunky, among other things he wanted to replace. So rather than building a big mechanical puppet, which would have been just silly waste of time and effort, they decided to do it as a CG puppet just for the shots that were going to be replaced. But of course, because most of the shots were still the original, it had to look just like the original. So they had me at ILM do a sculpture of E.T. that, uh, you know, using all the reference from the original film, had to look like the original puppet. Mm. And in fact, I had to fly this down with a couple of our production team, have a personal meeting with Spielberg. He had to approve that sculpture before I left his office. Awesome. That, was a, that was a really great uh, historical moment. So anyway, when, they, when the post office uh, along in partnership with the Academy of Motion Pictures decided to come out with these um, uh, movie stamps, they contacted the various studios that did special effects. And of course, ILM was among them and ILM submitted a number of what they thought might be iconic special effects shots. And they chose my sculpture of E.T. So that is my hand on the stamp and my sculpting tool with my little sculpture of E.T. One of the biggest, most unexpected honors of my entire career. That's that is. That's so very cool. cool. 
And I don't know, you probably can still find the stamps, um, you know, as collector's things. One more sculpture I want to show you is, because uh, we can talk about this maybe in later. This little Geppetto and Pinocchio. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is one of my favorite sculptures of my entire career because it's really personal. You know, it's the sculpture of the sculptor creating the sculptor, the sculpture. And Pinocchio is one of my favorite stories. And Disney's Pinocchio, I think, is my top favorite Disney animated classic. Mm. But this sculpture was done for um, AI, artificial intelligence. Oh, okay. You remember the scene where they're in the, in the submersible going around underwater in this sunken amusement park, and they go through Geppetto's village and they swing by the workshop and they see that sculpture of uh, Geppetto and Pinocchio through the window of the shop. Oh, very cool. So those are a few of my little treasures up there. I got a bunch of other cool stuff. Those are so cool. They're yeah. great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's awesome. Okay. Very cool stuff. And not everybody, it's interesting. Not everybody likes to, uh, you know, sometimes people work and it's their passion, but they don't like, you know, I, I think celebrating your work and, and being proud of it is, is, is really great. And that, that story about the stamp is cool because how unexpected and, and cool is that? Yeah, it really was. And, you know, and I, you know, I don't live for my work, but it was a major part of my life, obviously. And, and I had, I was lucky enough to have a career that, you know, so many people just dream they could, they could have. Um, it was a great, I've, uh, you know, I've never been a sculptor professionally. I haven't touched sculpture or digital or physical since I retired. When I went over to the digital side, never touched phys physical sculpture again. It's just never been my passion, but it's always been my work that I just love to do. Mm. So it's, it is unusual, but I, you know, I, especially now, you know, looking back on my career and realizing that I have contributed some important things to the happiness of the world, I hope. For sure. Um, it does make me proud and, and really happy to have been through it. Big Trouble in Little China and, and Back to the Future and Joe versus the Volcano and all these other films that we still have to chat about. Okay. Um, but Mark, uh, thank you so much for spending uh, so much of your time with us and sharing your stories. Uh, we learned, I learned a lot, things I didn't know. And, uh, you know, chatting with you via email and, and here and, and what we've heard about you from other people, it's all true. You're such a, a wonderful guy with great stories. And, and thank you for giving us exclusives and sharing your work with us. Like, that's why we do this is to spend time with folks like yourself. And we're just so happy that we could spend time with you today. So well, thank thanks. You. Thanks very much, Tom. I really appreciate it too. Of course. Well, it was great to meet you, Mark. Um, I'll let you guys get great. to it and uh, we, we will meet again. Yes, we will. I appreciate your good questions, Craig, and uh, we'll see you in the next one, whatever, whenever it might be. I will be there. I'm just going to sit here and wait for it. <laughs> Have a good night. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Craig. You too. Are you troubled by autograph forgeries online? Do you collect spores, molds, and Ghostbusters memorabilia? Have you or your family been looking for a safe place to go to add to your collection? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Check out the containment unit on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at ghostbustersautographs.com.